good morning, folks. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I have joined the ranks <clears throat> of those who are struggling now with a, a bad <clears throat> chest and a cough, but we'll see how it goes this morning. Um, to be or not to be, that is the question. So said Prince Hamlet, according to some English uh, bloke called William Shakespeare. And actually, that famous question forms a perfect backcloth to today's study in the book of James um, as we continue our our way through his um, epistle. For James is going to exhort his readers to be a number of things. And he's going to command us to be these things by doing or obeying certain specific commands. So our reading is taken from James. It's just continuing on where we left off last time. So we're picking up in verse 16 of chapter 1, and we're going to be reading then to the end of the chapter. So James 1, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says." Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does." If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we're going to look at our passage then in um, four sections. The first one then is verses 16 to 18, where James basically exhorts his readers and by extension ourselves in Castlereagh Fellowship to be clear-minded, be clear-minded. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from 
the Father. And here James reminds his readers of God's essential goodness. Not only is God good, but God is generous. He is the God who gives. Everything of value that we have comes from God. He is indeed the creator. And James uses a unique expression here in the scriptures. He refers to God as the father of lights, basically referring to God as the creator of the stars and planets. God is also unchangeable. Unlike the movement of the planets, he himself never changes. God is consistently good, consistently benevolent. And he has shown his goodness and benevolence by granting salvation to James's readers. James 1 verse 18 is a marvelous verse. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Here we have the source of our salvation. It was God who chose us. The nature of our salvation, we received birth, that is, we received a new life. The means of our salvation, the word of truth, that is, the gospel, and the purpose of our salvation, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. We know that under the old covenant, the Israelites were obliged to dedicate the first sheaves of a new harvest unto the Lord. And this was done to, first of all, honor the Lord for all that he had done for the Israelites, to secondly declare that Israel was God's possession, and thirdly, it was done in the expectation that God would be faithful to his promises and he would bless the Israelites with a full harvest crop. And this imagery of first fruits is then taken up in the New Testament to express the truth that Christians are God's special possession and that what we possess now as Christians is only a down payment or foretaste of what awaits us in glory. This is what then James's initial readers are to be clear-minded about. And obviously, you know, the same message goes forward to us this morning. Don't be deceived by what the world will tell you, that God is a killjoy, etc. Rather, remember God is always good, and his salvation that we have been rejoicing in this morning is the greatest thing that you will ever experience. Our second passage then, verses 19 to 21. Be, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. And here James piles up the exhortations. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. Get rid of all moral filth and evil and humbly accept the word that is planted in you. So let's just 
Take each of those in turn. First of all, then, be quick to listen. I love this. Um, Adley Stevenson was a former vice president of the United States of America. And he, he was invited to give a speech to students at Princeton University. So Adley Stevenson, when it came to his moment, he got up and said, I understand that I am here to speak and you are here to the students. You are here to listen. Let's hope we both finish at the same time. <laughs> listening, or at least listening without interrupting, can be a difficult skill, and yet it's a vitally important one. And the flip side of being quick to listen is to be slow to speak. I'm sure you've heard this uh, from different sources, but apparently it goes back to the Stoic philosopher Zeno, who said, we have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should listen twice as much as we speak. Yet, apparently, the average person spends one-fifth of their entire life talking. And I did say average person there. <laughs> One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Proverbs 17, verse 28. I'm actually considering having this put as the epitaph on my gravestone. Even fools who keep silent are considered wise. We know only too well the damage that can be done by speaking hastily, speaking out of turn. And James will have an awful lot more to say in his epistle about the dangers of the tongue of our speech. A rabbinical saying goes like this, three things come not back. The spent arrow, the lost opportunity, and the spoken word. Once you've said it, you can't take it back. On the other hand, you never need to take back an unspoken word. So let's be careful with what comes out of our lips, especially slander and gossip, which can create division and can tear assemblies of Christians, of churches apart. Third, we have the related injunction to be slow to become angry. And James tells us why. Because man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. Of course, we know there is such a thing as righteous anger. Think of Jesus expelling the money changers from the temple or Jesus railing against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But James is talking here about unrighteous anger, about man's anger. This is often hot-headed and motivated by hate and bitterness or by Reuben's grumpiness that we were thinking about last week. Not that Reuben was grumpy, but he was telling us about that danger. This is not something which should be seen in an assembly of believers. 
But, sad to tell, I suspect this has not always been our experience of church life. Although I do have to say that Castlereagh Fellowship throughout its history has experienced remarkably little of this vice, and long may that continue to be the case. Fourth, James tells his readers to get rid of all moral filth and evil. And for get rid of, he employs a term that you would use for getting yourself rid of a, like a soiled garment. And for moral filth, the term he uses could refer to medical waste or even to earwax. And if you think about it, how appropriate is that, given what he's just been saying about the importance of listening? This moral filth and evil is prevalent everywhere in society. We are constantly being bombarded by this world's values and attitudes. And our behavior can so easily lapse from the standards that are required of us as God's people. And therefore, you and me, you and I need a daily moral bath, a daily moral bath. What does that entail? What does a daily moral bath entail? Well, James's fifth point tells us, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. It is only as we encounter the word of God and remind ourselves of the glorious gospel that we will be led to repentance and receive fresh strength to go forwards in our walk of faith. There is no other way. Humble yourself before the word of God. Let the word of God challenge you. Do not treat the word of God as a light thing or treat it with disdain, but let the word of God penetrate to your, the very depths of your soul. Then the third section, verses 22 to 25, be responsive, be responsive. Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. James has no time for those who don't act upon what they hear. You know, we would say in one ear and out the other. And in that, he is repeating the words of Jesus. Luke 11, verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And significantly, given the, you know, the supposed discrepancy between uh, what James teaches and what Paul teaches on the issue of faith versus works, Paul taught the Romans, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, Romans 2 verse 13. And James is all into doing. And to ram home his point, he contrasts the man who looks into the mirror and then immediately forgets what he looks like with a second man who uh, looks intently into the law that gives freedom and then does what the law commands. And apparently in the original, the contrast is not so much with the looking 
both actually look quite intensely, albeit the second looks even more intensely, but that's not really the point. The point is the stress is on what happens afterwards. The first man immediately forgets what he looks like. Um, it's not quite as bad as the, um, the story of the um, indigenous tribesman who, having been shown his reflection in a mirror for the very first time, promptly smashed the mirror with his machete because the mirror was making ugly faces at him. But it still isn't good, for this first man refuses to act upon what has been revealed to him of his own flaws and deficiencies. But the second man responds to what he learns and says, James, he will be blessed for doing so. This is the proper employment of what Kent Hughes calls the mirror, the mirror ministry of God's word, the mirror ministry of God's word. You look into it and it shows you what you're like and then you obey on the basis of that. You address what it shows up about your faults and your sins. And then the final section is verses 26 to 27, which is be consistent, be consistent. If anyone considers himself religious, starts the, the, uh, the section. And usually when religion is mentioned in the Bible, it actually has a negative connotation, for it is normally to do with external ritual rather than an affair of the heart. But here James is establishing the sort of religion that qualifies as, um, as true spirituality. And he gives three criteria, not that it's an exhaustive list, but examples of a pure and faultless religion that is acceptable to God. First is his favorite, a bridled tongue, a controlled tongue, controlled speech. Anyone who cannot control their tongue exposes their claim to true religious commitment as being bogus. They are self-deceived. Their religion is worthless, vain or empty. Remember what Jesus had to say on this topic in Matthew 12, 34. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words are an indicator of our heart. So if we're known for malicious and spiteful speech, if we're known for bad-tempered and foul outbursts, if we're known for being constantly critical of our brothers and sisters, then we expose our claim to know and worship God as, according to James, being false. Secondly, we will look after widows and orphans in their distress. That is, we will exhibit a tangible evidence of social concern. And the word that James uses for look after can mean either visit or care for. Now, in James's day, it was obviously a, a patriarchal society where the husband was the breadwinner. Thus, 
any widows were extremely vulnerable to economic hardship. And likewise, in an adult-dominated society, as was James's uh, culture, then children, ha- children had very little status. So orphans were in the acute category for vulnerability. But the psalmist reminds us that God is a father of the fatherless and a defender of the widow. And we know that under the Mosaic law, there were stipulations in place to yield widows and orphans protection and support. As Christians, we are called upon to care for the world's disadvantaged and vulnerable. And to do so, not just with our words, but with our physical and material resources. And again, I do think that Cassaray Fellowship has a pretty good record in that respect. And then third, true religion means keeping oneself from being polluted by the world, world here standing for the whole belief system that is opposed to God and God's rule. That is, we are not to drink in the world's values and attitudes. And we're not thinking here, you know, of the really uh, flagrant, uh, flagrant sins of the world, you know, the really, really nasty stuff, but all just the world's values that in a more subtle and insidious way just can erode our distinctiveness so that as believers, as Christians, we're no different to those around us. That's what James is seeking to counter here. Bombarded as we are by society's values, it is vital that we live lives that are marked by a qualitative difference to our unbelieving neighbors or indeed to followers of other uh, belief systems, other religions. We need to be seen to be distinctive as being different and different in a good way. So I want to finish then this morning with three key lessons. Three B's again. B's, the emphasis this morning is on B's as in B-E, not B-E-E. Be people of the word. Be people of the word is our first lesson. It is the word of God that gives us new birth. And it is the word of God that will nourish our spiritual lives enabling us to grow and develop in our likeness of Jesus Christ. There is no other way, period. Thus, it is essential that you and I are engaging in daily Bible study. And it is important how we are reading the Bible. We must not just go through the motions. The late Alec Mateer wrote, It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading, but to achieve no more than to have moved the bookmark forward. The word is read, but not heard. In contrast, how carefully, how diligently do we read a letter that comes in, say, from the bank? or from the taxman. Derek Prime writes, the standard of application and seriousness that we give to study in other spheres 
must be the minimum standard we are prepared to give to God's word. You know, think of somebody swatting up for their exams, their finals. And if they're a good student, how diligently they prepare for that. Well, that level of seriousness engagement should be the way that we read the Bible. And might I add that you should be bringing your Bible to church, whether it be a hard copy or whether it is in a digital form. You should have your Bible with you. You should have your Bible out right now, checking what I am saying as I give this talk. You should not be in church this morning without your Bible, period. Secondly, be people of action. It is not enough to read the Word of God. We must then act upon its truth. We all know there's a world of difference between looking at a menu and eating a meal. John Dixon writes, Advancing in our knowledge of Christ's teaching is not the goal of the Christian life. It is the means by which God strengthens us for the life of faith, a faith that works. And the Apostle John said in 1 John 3 verse 18, Dear children, let us not love one another with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. As someone once put it, if you want the world to heed, put your creed, what you believe, put your creed into your deed. And finally, be people of justice. In line with what James says in verse 27 of our text, and contrary to a lot of the negative stuff that we hear and read about the church, Christianity has a great legacy of pursuing justice on behalf of the vulnerable and helpless. It was Christianity that was responsible for establishing welfare provision for medical and educational facilities for the poor and for women and children. It was their Christian convictions that motivated people like Wilberforce and Shaftesbury and Bernardo and Muller to do such pioneering work in the alleviation of social evils, ills like slavery and child labor and in the establishment of orphanages. Helping the helpless is part and parcel of our calling as Christ's people. And we can apply that to, our, to the plight of refugees in our war-torn world of today. But I just want to establish a wee caveat here. Because today, we will hear an awful lot about what is called social justice. Indeed, social justice is a central plank of progressive Christianity. But the exponents of this movement have departed from the creed of historic Christianity. Progressive Christianity has basically bought into what's called critical theory with its view of oppression. So social justice is taking up the cause of the oppressed. The oppressed being any group that is perceived as being the victim of power plays. So we're talking about non-whites, 
women, the LGBTQ plus community, the non-able, etc. Social justice will thus necessitate a social revolution, overturning our social structures and institutions in a never-ending pursuit of recompense for the evils of the past. Now, that is a very far cry from what we understand as biblical justice. We are not social revolutionaries motivated by a sense of victimhood and a, de- and a desire for unending revenge. And we know that it is only in the age to come and not in the here and now, as progressive Christianity proclaims, that there will be true social justice. Our priority must always be to preach the gospel and bring men and women up front so that they face not society's sins and evils, their own sin, their personal sin, and bring them to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. We are not to bend the gospel in the pursuit of some distorted vision of social justice today. So, be people of the word. Be people of action. And be people who seek biblical justice. That is our mandate. To be or not to be, that is the question that each of us has to face and as a church we have to face. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.